Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are our top stories. A judge says District Attorney Fani Willis could be disqualified from Georgia's election case and may be asked to testify over accusations of misconduct this week. And former President Trump asks the Supreme Court to step in on the matter of presidential immunity. Trump endorses Michael Watley to replace Ronna McDaniel as RNC chair, the latest in the former president's plans to shake up the committee. A shooting at a New York City subway station leaves one dead and five injured. The suspect still at large, what we know so far. The Senate passes the Ukraine-Israel aid package, setting up a showdown with the House. Speaker Johnson's latest criticisms of the bill and why Senator J.D. Vance is sounding the alarm on a possible hidden time bomb. President Biden meets with the King of Jordan about the future of the war in Gaza, what each say their priorities are, and the status on a potential hostage deal. Public schools in New York are closed today as a fast-moving nor'easter is forecast to dump up to eight inches of snow in the city and surrounding suburbs. How officials are preparing. The cost of a key ingredient in chocolate is at an all-time high. How that impacts Valentine's Day with a host of NTD Business. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome, everyone. Today is Tuesday, February 13th. And first of all, the Biden impeachment inquiry is heating up. It is. Yeah, the top Democrat on the Oversight Committee, Raskin, says Bobulinski presents giant red flags and he calls on Comer to use Trump administration officials to corroborate any of the claims he makes in his testimony. That's exactly right. And this is what we're uh, delving into today in today's top news. Hunter Biden's former associate is expected to testify today in the impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Anonymous sources told Fox News the House Oversight and Judiciary Committees will conduct a transcribed interview with Tony Bobulinski. Bobulinski and the younger Biden created a joint venture with Chinese regime-linked energy company CEFC. Bobulinski suggested last year that he, the president, his brother James Biden, and the first son appear together for a public hearing before Congress. That was after Hunter Biden's lawyer accused Bobulinski of lying to the FBI about his business with the president's son. Bobulinski accused President Biden of lying about never meeting him in a statement to Fox News. He called on the president to correct the record. James Biden is scheduled for a closed-door interview next Wednesday. Hunter Biden is set to depose in two weeks. And for some analysis on the impact Bobulinski's testimony will have, we hear from Kyle Brosnan, Chief Counsel for the Heritage Foundation's Oversight Project. Kyle, thank you for your time. What impact will it have in the impeachment inquiry if Bobulinski testifies, saying that President Biden did meet with him face-to-face? Good morning. Thank you for having me today. So, so Tony Bobulinski is a very important fact witness in the impeachment inquiry. He worked with Hunter Biden uh, for when Hunter's work uh, with CEFC, a Chinese Communist Party affiliated business. And he could, and Bobulinski's testimony today could really fill in a lot of gaps where other business associates like Rob Walker's testimony were silent. There's really three big points that Bobulinski can can testify to today. Uh, first, he, he claims he met with President Biden in 2017. Uh, second is that he's on an email chain with Hunter 
where it's indicating it's 10% for the big guy in terms of the money they make from their business dealings. And, and the big guy in these email chains are widely known to be Joe Biden. And, and the third is, is that Hunter in communications with Bob Lewinsky indicated that uh, Joe Biden was at least involved in, in sort of directing and advising him on his business practices and that their work together can be to, quote, generational wealth for everyone involved. And so he's got key facts documents to corroborate what his testimony is, and he could provide that to Congress as they further their impeachment inquiry today. Right. And on that point of corroboration, will Bobulinski's testimony carry significant weight on its own, or will there have to be a lot of corroborating evidence to make a case? So he's in there for a trash guide interview today. So they're not, it's not under oath, but it is still a crime to lie to Congress. So he will be testifying today under pain of felony. He could go to jail if he lies today. Uh, Bobulinski also has documents to corroborate his, uh, his what he's saying here. Um, he's provided that to the FBI. Um, he's provided that in public, and it's been you know gleaned from Hunter Biden's laptop and other sources. And so these documents are contemporaneous communications from you know as far back as 2015, 2016, 2017, and they provide a real timeline of what's happening of what happened in real time uh, back back as far as when Joe Biden was vice president. Right, and Kyle, I want to read to you a text message that Bobulinski sent to Joe Biden's brother. Is that in May 2017, he said, Great to meet you and spend some time together. Please thank Joe for his time. It was great to talk. Thanks. Tony B. Well, Hunter Biden's November, in November, he called for an investigation that we mentioned into Associate Bobulinski, alleging that he lied to the FBI and that about President Biden's connections to his business dealings. So, how does that affect the credibility of Bobulinski's testimony? The text message that you said is, is one that was sent back in 2017. Um, another business associate testified and did not deny the authenticity of that text message. Um, you know, so, so you know, it, the testimony is, is one thing. You, know, you, can, you can pull a he said, she said sort of uh, storytelling there, but the documents are the ones that tell the real story because these communications happened in real time. So, so that text message shows that Bob Alinsky, um, you know, thanked James Biden for his time and referenced meeting Joe Biden. So, um, you know, that meeting appears to have at least occurred. So is that a smoking gun here? I mean, what more needs to be shown in order for the House GOP effort to prevail? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a smoking gun. I mean, they've, they've launched this impeachment inquiry. They, they've, they've, you know, formalized it with a vote and, and they're able to get documents, you know, through subpoena or voluntary means to, to corroborate that. Um, you know, that is a, important piece of evidence showing that Bob Alinsky, you know, communicated in real time here. The testimony today, I'm sure they will question him about that uh, in, in the interview today. And, and so they could speak with him about it to sort of glean more information, get the context of what was behind those communications and, and really you know, continue their pursuit of the truth. Well, thank you so much for weighing in on this. Kyle Brosnan, Chief Counsel for the Heritage Foundation's Oversight Project. Thank you for having me. Former President Trump asked the Supreme Court yesterday to pause a lower court's ruling rejecting his bid for presidential immunity. Trump also wants a full bench of judges to reconsider the D.C. appeals court decision instead of the three-judge panel that made the ruling. Meanwhile, the district attorney in Georgia's election case could be facing disqualification. A judge said yesterday the DA might have to testify Thursday over allegations of misconduct. Entities Jeremy Sandberg has more on Trump's legal battles. Former President Trump asked the Supreme Court Monday to temporarily block a unanimous decision from the D.C. Circuit denying his claims to presidential immunity in his federal January 6th case. 
The case would be sent back to trial court to proceed if Trump's request is rejected. If granted, the case would be further delayed. It generally takes the votes of five justices to grant a stay. Prosecutors have argued Trump was acting as a candidate, not a president, for his alleged role on January 6th. Trump wants the case dismissed based on presidential immunity. In Georgia, the judge and district attorney Fonnie Willis's election case against Trump said she could be disqualified. I think it's clear that disqualification can occur if evidence is produced demonstrating an actual conflict or the appearance of one. Willis and special counsel Nathan Wade tried to have their subpoenas quashed and the hearing canceled. The judge rejected their arguments. He says Thursday's hearing will focus on if a relationship existed, if it was romantic in nature, when it formed, and whether it continues. The judge says it remains to be proven that Willis financially benefited from the case, but that Thursday's hearing must occur to establish the record on allegations of misconduct, and that Willis may be required to testify due to a good faith basis for relevance from the defense. The relevant information that Mr. Bradley has to this inquiry is that this relationship started prior to Mr. Wade being appointed as a special prosecutor in this case. Trump and his co-defendants are also seeking to get the entire case dismissed. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Former President Trump looking to shake up the Republican National Committee. He's backing North Carolina Republican Party Chair Michael Watley to succeed Ronna McDaniel as RNC chair. He also endorsed his daughter-in-law, Lara Trump, as co-chair. McDaniel had offered to step down after the South Carolina primary after she met with Trump at his Mar-a-Lago residence earlier in the month. Trump is also tapping his senior presidential campaign advisor to manage the RNC's day-to-day -day operations. Republican presidential contender Nikki Haley criticized Trump's endorsements, saying that he's rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. She says under Trump and the current RNC leadership, Republicans lost elections in 2018, 2020, and 2022. The Pentagon saying doctors have cleared Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin to return to his official duties today. The Monday statement said Austin underwent non-surgical procedures under anesthesia to address his bladder issue and that a prolonged hospital stay is not anticipated. The statement also said his cancer prognosis remains excellent. His health issues did force him to cancel a planned trip to Brussels for a NATO meeting and Ukraine meetings this week. Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks assumed Austin's duties when he was hospitalized on Sunday. And House Republicans will have another chance to vote on Homeland Security Secretary Alejandra Mayorkas's impeachment today after their motion was defeated last week. Republicans had vowed to try again once House Majority Leader Steve Scalise returned to work, Scalise was absent from the first vote because he was receiving cancer treatment. GOP lawmakers want to remove Mayorkas for his handling of the border, saying he failed to enforce immigration law. Democrats have denounced the impeachment, calling it political posturing. And a fast-moving winter storm expected to hit the Northeast this morning. And today's Daniel Monaghan has more on the weather system that could dump as much as eight inches of snow on, the New on New York City before moving north later today. The Metropolitan Transportation Authority in New York was busy getting its bus fleet ready with snow chains for the storm. Some of the highest snowfall totals were forecast for the northern suburbs of New York City. Mayor Eric Adams says public schools will be closed on Tuesday, with classes being held remotely. Well, that's one of the things that came out of COVID-19. We could continue the educational process of our children, so they will be learning remotely. 
The Department of Sanitation says it began putting salt on roadways on Monday night. And we will be prepared to plow every street, every highway, and every bike lane as soon as accumulations hit two inches or more. Temperatures were not expected to dip much below freezing in New York, raising the prospect of heavy and wet snow that's difficult to shovel off sidewalks. The storm is expected to bring low visibility, high wind gusts, slick roads, and up to two feet of coastal flooding. Southern New England is also forecast to be hit. Cities including Boston and Hartford, Connecticut could see up to a foot of snow. Wind gusts could hit 60 miles per hour off the Massachusetts coast and 40 miles per hour in interior parts of Southern New England. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And now we're turning to updates from the Lakewood Church shooting in Texas. Police have identified the suspect who opened fire at Pastor Joel Olstein's megachurch in Houston on Sunday. They're also revealing more of what they discovered during the investigation. Houston police on Monday identified the shooter at Lakewood Church as 36-year-old Genesee Yvonne Marino, an Hispanic female. There are some discrepancies. We do have reports. She used multiple aliases, including Jeffrey Escalante. So she has utilized both male and female names. But through all of our investigation to this point, talking with individuals, interviews, documents, Houston Police Department reports, she has been identified this entire time as female, she, her, and so uh, we are identifying her as Genesee Moreno, Hispanic female. Police said Moreno had a history of mental illness and a criminal background. She was placed under emergency detention in 2016. Authorities uncovered a rifle she used at the scene. There was a sticker on the buttstock of the rifle that stated Palestine. A sticker simply stated Palestine on the buttstock. Authorities have searched Marino's house in Conroe, Texas, as well as her car, and said they found anti-Semitic writings. I mentioned anti-Semitic writing. We do believe that there was a familial dispute that has taken place between uh, her ex-husband and her ex-husband's family, and some of those individuals are of uh, are Jewish. So we believe that that is might might possibly be where all of this stems from. Marino entered Lakewood Church, which has a capacity of more than 16,000, and began firing shortly before 2 p.m. local time on Sunday. A service was about to start at the time. Two off-duty officers present killed Marino before she could kill anyone inside the church. The shooter brought with her a seven-year-old boy. Police on Monday confirmed that the boy is her biological son. Multiple shots are exchanged by all three. She eventually falls to the ground. The seven-year-old child it falls to the ground as well from gunfire, one uh, gunshot wound to the head. Like has been mentioned earlier today, he is in critical condition at this time. A man in his 50s sustained a non-critical leg injury and was being treated at a local hospital. An investigation into the shooting is ongoing. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Coming up, the Senate passes the Ukraine-Israel aid package, setting up a showdown with the House. Speaker Johnson's latest criticisms of the bill and why Senator J.D. Vance is sounding the alarm on a possible hidden time bomb.
The heads of the CIA and Israel's Mossad intelligence agency reportedly in Egypt today for another round of hostage talks and ceasefire negotiations. Our guest weighs in on what to expect after the break. Good to have you back. And breaking news this morning, the Senate has passed the $95 billion aid package for Ukraine and Israel, setting up a showdown with the House. Speaker Mike Johnson has criticized the bill and is threatening to ignore it. We have more details coming up. But first, President Biden met with the King of Jordan at the White House yesterday. The two heads of state discussed a hostage deal between Israel and Hamas that would pause fighting, humanitarian aid to civilians, and solutions for peace in the region. President Biden met with longtime U.S. ally Jordan's King Abdullah II on Monday for talks on the Israel-Hamas war. The United States is working on a hostage deal between Israel and Hamas, which would bring an immediate and sustained period of calm to Gaza for at least six weeks. The pause in fighting would allow humanitarian aid and supplies to flow into the Strip. Biden said the U.S. would do everything possible to make an agreement happen adding that key elements of the deal are on the table, but there are gaps that remain. This comes after Israeli airstrikes on the city of Rafah in southern Gaza. Israel rescued two hostages during the operation. Rafah currently holds close to one and a half million Palestinians. Biden stressed the major military operation should not proceed without a credible plan to ensure the safety of the people sheltering there. And now they're packed into Rafah, exposed and vulnerable. They need to be protected. Abdullah, the first Arab leader to visit the White House since Hamas's October 7th terrorist attack on Israel, called for a complete ceasefire. We must together, along with Arab partners and the international community, step up efforts to reach a ceasefire in Gaza and immediately start working to create a political horizon that leads to a just and comprehensive peace. Senior officials from the U.S., Egypt, Israel and Qatar will reportedly resume negotiations Tuesday in Cairo on a hostage deal and humanitarian pause, anonymous sources told Reuters. State Department spokesman Matthew Miller didn't confirm talks would take place, but said Israel's military action in Rafah should in no way impact the negotiations. And for analysis on the upcoming negotiations in Egypt and what they could look like, we bring in Ariel Lightstone. He's a former advisor to the U.S. ambassador to Israel and a former special envoy for the Abraham Accords. Good morning. It's good to have you back. So first of all, the CIA director is traveling to Egypt, as we have heard. He was, of course, in Paris recently as well. So this time around, how hopeful are you that these talks could uh, reach a hostage deal? I think they could reach a hostage deal, but I think we have to decide whether that hostage deal is a deal worth reaching. Understanding each life is incredibly precious, but if Hamas is still in Gaza at the end of whatever is accomplished, it will be a failure for the free world. So can you elaborate on that? What makes it a deal worth reaching? Sure, a deal worth reaching is the end of Hamas in Gaza, the return of all of the hostages. And yes, there could be a release of many of the prisoners that Israel has if that needs to wind up being a win uh, for Hamas in this regard. But anything that allows the terror infrastructure to go ahead and to rebuild would ultimately be a disaster because what was the point of a war if the war is going to need to be fought just again? You have to be able to win a war. Hmm. So is that realistic? What could a deal realistically look like, do you think? 
But a deal I think today is going to wind up, if it winds up happening, to be the release of the other 130-some hostages that are left. Hopefully many of them are still alive, although there are meaningful doubts in terms of how many are still alive, for a pause in the fighting. I think a pause is acceptable. Any of the requirements that says that Israeli troops need to leave Gaza permanently until there's somebody else to replace them, or that there needs to be a full evacuation of Israeli uh, war attempts here would be a, a mistake. And I think they're frankly non-starters. Interesting. And I, I want to also look at um, Israel's leverage in these negotiations this time around, because many are fearful that the war is spreading to Rafah, um, an attack there is looming. So how do you think this would influence the negotiations and Israel's position? Yeah, not only is an attack looming, an attack will happen. This is if for, for anybody who watched the Super Bowl, what America is currently asking Israel to do is like asking Patrick Mahomes to kneel on the two-yard line instead of trying to score a touchdown looking to win. Israel has successfully defeated 18 of the 24 Hamas brigades. The last brigades are all holed up in Rafah. The remaining hostages are all in Rafah. The remaining leaders of Hamas are all in Rafah. And the goal in order to be able to stop fighting means let the hostages stay there, let the leaders of Hamas stay there, and let these brigades be able to remain there. That's ridiculous. Israel has done an incredible job defeating Hamas up to this point in time. They need a plan to be able to help the civilians that are now in Rafah. They've articulated that plan. They'll execute on that plan. But ultimately, they need to go ahead and to destroy the remaining brigades of Hamas to release and to, to rescue the remaining hostages that are there and ultimately to kill or to capture the leaders of Hamas who perpetrated October 7th and who will begin planning the next October 7th if they're left to roam free. Hmm. So um, before we end this, I want to ask you there, because there is quite a few ana uh, analysts now that believe Netanyahu is actually an interest in continuing the war, so he does not have to face the consequences such as and questions about the intelligence failure leading up to the October 7th. And especially a former hostage negotiator for Israel even said that he suspects that Netanyahu would go as far as to sabotage negotiations. What are your thoughts on these it's incredibly tiring to hear that this is Bibi's war. It's, it's, it's old, it's boring, and frankly, it's, it's just sort of recycled talking points. Any leader of Israel today looking for the future of Israel will try to finish the war against Hamas. Yes, there will be a time when the war is over where everybody who is elected and appointed will have to answer for how October 7th happened. But anybody, and Elizabeth Warren loves to say this, this is Bibi's war. This isn't Bibi's war. This is Israel's war. There was no war on October 6th. Hamas brutally attacked Israel on October 7th. Israel has been avoiding going into Gaza for 15 years right now. There is not a single leader who would be elected to Israel who would not be called upon to complete the war. So this is just politics instead of policy. And, and, and frankly, I think it's, uh, it's boring. Thank you so much for your take on this, Ariel Lightstone. Thank you. And back in the U.S., House Speaker Mike Johnson is threatening to ignore the Senate's $95 billion aid package for Ukraine and Israel. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the contents of the bill and the Speaker's opposition. Johnson wrote Monday that the legislation fails to meet the mandate of securing America's borders. The impasse represents a fundamental disagreement between Republicans and Democrats. Republicans want stronger measures at the southern border before agreeing to more foreign aid. Democrats are prioritizing the aid for Ukraine and Israel. 
The Senate package cleared a test vote Monday evening. That puts the measure on a path toward final passage, perhaps by the end of the week. The bill includes over $60 billion in additional aid to Ukraine, $14 billion to Israel, nearly $2.5 billion for Red Sea operations, nearly $5 billion to support partners in the Indo-Pacific, including Taiwan, and deter aggression by China, and around $9 billion in humanitarian assistance to civilians in Gaza, the West Bank, Ukraine, and other populations in conflict zones. Senator J.D. Vance sounded the alarm on what he called an impeachment time bomb for a potential Donald Trump presidency buried in the bill's text. Vance says that time bomb could be set off if Trump tries to stop funding the war in Ukraine. The Ohio senator says he sent a memo to all GOP colleagues pointing out the Ukraine funding in the bill continues until September 30th, 2025. The memo brings up the former president's 2019 impeachment and connects that with his freezing of funds to Ukraine. The impeachment report criticizes Trump for freezing military assistance to Ukraine against national security interests and says he did so despite long-standing bipartisan support of Congress and uniform support across federal departments and agencies. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Up next, a shooting in a New York City subway yesterday leaves one person dead and five wounded. Police say the suspect is still at large. Concerns over rising Mexican cartel violence this year. How will this affect the crisis at the U.S. southern border? And can the election in Mexico help solve this problem? A law enforcement advocate weighs in in a moment. Good to have you back. One person was killed and five others seriously injured in a New York City subway shooting yesterday. Police say the shooter is still at large. An argument that exploded into a bout of deadly violence. That's how the New York City Police Department described the shooting at a subway station Monday afternoon that left one person dead and five wounded. We don't believe this was a random shooting. We do not believe that this was an individual indiscriminately firing into a train or in a train station. The police reported multiple 911 calls to respond to Mount Eden Station in the Bronx around 4.30 p.m. When they arrived, they found six people who were shot. One of the victims, a 34-year-old man, was later pronounced dead. The five other victims, ranging from 14 to 71 years old, are all in stable condition at various hospitals. No arrests have been made so far. Police say the incident started with a dispute between two groups of teenagers. As the train pulled into the Mount Eden uh, station, the doors opened up uh, and at least one of the individuals in that group or in the two groups uh, took out a gun and fired shots. Police say the shooter is still at large, but that there's no ongoing threat. New York City responding to recent violence by illegal immigrants. Mayor Eric Adams' administration is placing new rules on migrant shelters. And today's Chris Beers asked people in the Big Apple what they think about this latest move. I'm here in New York City, which just implemented a curfew on select migrant shelters here. The curfew runs from about 11 p.m. to 6 a.m., and it comes after violence linked to some of the people from these shelters. Let's hear what New York City residents have to say about this. 
I think it's totally appropriate. I think uh, when you walk by some of the migrant hotels, they're out on the street. It's difficult to even navigate the sidewalk. And if you're elderly or children, it's it's a little it feels a little bit threatening. So I think having everyone in by 11 o'clock is is appropriate. You know, it's a very large population, and I guess there's some management that has to happen. I live near Union Square, and early in the morning there are people with bags that are just sort of looking for places to go live and things to do because they're not allowed to work. So I guess the city feels like it needs to be managed, but um, for the most part, the population seems to be managing itself pretty well. So. I agree that there should be a, some control. I feel like a curfew in general for a shelter that's placed for adults is unnecessary. I feel like there shouldn't be like an exact rule or regulation on when somebody leaves or not for the place that they're resided in. I think that it's a good thing because everybody would be off the street. That So that part of it is good. It's always a catch-22. You know what I mean? That part is good. But then when what about when they're off the street? Then what? You know, when they have to go in those buildings and in those shelters, you never really truly know who's in the building. And it's not safe for anybody. Uh, I believe it's a good thing because I... I walk through here late night and I see all the guys standing outside. So it is a, a little, makes me feel a little uneasy to see all those people just standing around, hanging out, whatever they're doing in, in the streets all times of the night. New York City has long implemented curfews on traditional shelters. This curfew will impact about 3,600 of the 66,000 migrants currently staying in the city's migrant shelter system. This is Chris Beers reporting from New York City for NTD News. Serious concerns over the southern border stemming from an expected rise in Mexican cartel violence this year, according to border and security experts. We speak to Jason Johnson, the president of the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund, to find out what this means for Americans and if the upcoming general election in Mexico may alleviate some of these challenges. Well, I, I think probably as most of your, your viewers know, the, the, the Mexican side of the U.S.-Mexico border uh, is is pretty much run by the cartels. There's a significant um, trafficking of fentanyl and other drugs across the border, and they have complete control of the Mexican side. But because of uh, the volume of uh, migrants across the border, with that brings control by potentially, and, and I think probably in reality, significant additional control um, on the U.S. side by Mexican cartels. And what that means is that there likely will be an escalation in violence, again, on the U.S. side of the border, uh, political corruption and other, um, you know, just ba basically other um, what you see on the Mexican side of the border migrating and moving across the border along with lots of migrants and, and fentanyl. And Jason, in past months, Secretary of State Antony Blinken has said that cartels have taken control of territories in Mexico, a claim that Mexican president has pushed back on. Yet, what do authorities in the U.S. need to do to cooperate with their Mexican counterparts in order to combat these cartels? Well, it's, it's, I think it's difficult to do that when you have Mexican authorities denying the, uh, the existence or the extent of control of these cartels. I think it's pretty well known. Uh, by United States intelligence officials and law enforcement officials that these cartels have very significant control, especially in the area of the border. And um, the fact that Mexican officials might deny that, I think, um, sort of foreshadows a difficulty in really coming together um, on those issues, those international issues at our border. Um, 
obviously you want to have cooperation with Mexican officials, and, and the question is whether the, the United States uh, State Department and, local, and federal law enforcement agencies will be able to do that. To the extent that they cannot do it, the focus really just needs to be on how we deal with the impact of that on you know, the United States side of the border. And definitely. And are U.S. policies on drugs and arms trafficking serving to block these cartels from operating at the U.S. southern border? I don't think it does, uh, because I think that, that the border is, uh, I mean, we've all seen evidence of this, whether we're at the border or not. We've seen the evidence of the, the porous nature of the border at this time, that whether it's drugs coming across the border, guns coming across the border, individuals members of cartels who intend to establish themselves or further establish themselves within the United States on the U.S. side of the border, um, we currently don't have an answer for how to prevent that until and unless uh, we get control of the border. Jason, there is a general election coming up in June in Mexico. And with that, is there any chance a new administration can rein in these cartels? Well, I, certainly there's always a chance and there is a hope for that. Um, but I think we've been hoping for that for a very long time, regardless of who's in, in power in, in Mexico. These uh, these cartels, the Sinaloa cartel as, as one, but they're certainly not the only one, have maintained control uh, of significant portions of the Mexican territory regardless. So, uh, of course, there is a hope if there's an administration in Mexico that takes it seriously, and hopefully an administration here in the United States that takes the risk seriously, there certainly is always hope for cooperation and working jointly with uh, Mexican authorities to, to reduce the risk uh, to the United States. A very important update from you, Jason Johnson, president of the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. California lawmakers and labor unions are calling for laws requiring autonomous trucks to have human drivers on board. This comes amid rising safety concerns after accidents involving self-driving taxis from GM and Alphabet. A Waymo robo-taxi hit a cyclist in San Francisco last week. Back in October, there was a major accident where a GM Cruise robo-taxi hit and dragged a pedestrian 20 feet. State lawmakers are pushing for stricter control through two bills. One would give cities control over permits for AVs and AV-related laws. Now only state regulators control permitting. The other bill would require a human driver to be present behind the wheel of self-driving commercial trucks. The Teamsters Union backs both bills. Tech companies are major contributors to California's economy, and tightening AV regulations is perceived by some as complicated. A spokesman from Governor Gavin Newsom's office said the bill will be evaluated on its merits if it reaches his desks. And stay tuned. Cross-sex procedures, irreversible surgical operations that are a heated topic of debate. NTD spoke with a man that now regrets multiple operations he underwent. He's calling for more safeguards to protect the mentally ill. Good to have you back. A Massachusetts judge dismissed civil claims against Harvard University and some of its employees yesterday in a scandal over stolen body remains. Families of donated cadavers filed a class action lawsuit in June last year. That was after a former morgue employee was federally charged. The manager is facing separate federal charges of conspiracy and transport of stolen goods in the case. He's accused of stealing body parts and conspiring with his wife to sell them. His wife and two alleged buyers are also being charged in the case. 
The judge ruled there isn't enough evidence to suggest the university's leaders failed to act in good faith in their handling of the bodies and cannot be held accountable for the manager's alleged actions. He also dismissed claims against two employees of Harvard Medical School's anatomical gift program. An attorney representing several of the families said she plans to appeal the decision. The family's claims against the former morgue manager were allowed to move forward. And irreversible cross-sex procedures. One man who used to identify as a woman says there aren't enough safeguards in place to make sure someone doesn't regret their decision. NTD's Daniel Monahan spoke with that detransitioner who feels his extensive mental health history was not adequately paid attention to and now regrets the operations he received. Richard Anumine says he started taking psychiatric medication at around seven years old and was hospitalized due to his mental health many times. He believes he was over-medicated, taking multiple prescriptions including Risperidone, Haldol, Prozac, and Abilify. I had like a multiple, multiple diagnoses. I was diagnosed with uh, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, I think bipolar mania disorder. Um, I was diagnosed with uh, post-traumatic uh, stress disorder. The detransitioner says his medical records show his suicidal ideations. Anumine says he had a lot of self-hatred. He traces that to the emotional and physical abuse he says he suffered from his parents and the sexual molestation he experienced from his older brother, who later committed suicide. Anumine says the trauma caused him to disassociate from himself, from his maleness, as the male role models he had played such a dark role in his life. With a rocky and violent household, which even involved the belief in witchcraft by his Nigerian parents, Anumine soon took off and wound up homeless. In this vulnerable state, he looked for a way out, and eventually found himself in the trans community, where things started taking off quickly at around age 18. It was, it was very, I mean, it was rushed. I had little counseling. I was like, I was seeking like a two like a counseling sessions at the Gender Health Center, which is based in Sacramento, California. And within a few sessions, I was approved to, get, to go into the hormone, their hormone clinic and get my first prescription of uh, estradiol and uh, spironolactone. Anumine says they never asked him about his childhood or family or questions he feels were critical to ask. What's your sexuality? Like, are you heterosexual? Are you homosexual? Um, you know, do you see yourself having kids? Do you want to have kids? Do you want to father kids? Things moved fast on the legal side of things also. With the help of the Gender Health Center in Sacramento, Anumini's name, birth certificate, and driver's license were all legally changed free of charge to Alice Dorothy Renard. After spending time in a mental hospital following a psychotic episode, Anumine began to have doubts about transitioning and returned home. But after the suicide of his brother, Anumine says his father became violent again, and so he fled back to the refuge he had found earlier in the trans community. It wasn't long after that that the young man wound up at Kaiser Permanente Hospital, where he got multiple irreversible surgeries that forever changed his life. Because I'm a heterosexual man, so I can't even perform. 
I had the vaginoplasty, which completely destroyed, like completely erases all of that. Completely erased my sexual function and, uh, you know, it's, that surgery is, is probably my biggest regret. I regret having that surgery. Anumine says all the operations he received were paid for by the state of California. He has since detransitioned. He says the potential side effects of such a drastic operation were understated and glossed over. Years after his operations, he has regular bleeding and must wear a diaper. He's experiencing incontinence and has frequent urinary tract infections infecting his bladder and kidneys. He filed a lawsuit against the hospital Kaiser Permanente in 2022. NTD reached out to Kaiser Permanente to ask what safeguards they have in place to ensure that mentally ill people don't receive irreversible life-altering operations, but they refused to comment. NTD also contacted the Gender Health Center in Sacramento, but they didn't reply by broadcast time. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Just ahead, as Valentine's Day approaches, the price of cocoa is on the rise. How much chocolates could cost you this year? Love social media but hate politics? This new Instagram update could be for you. We get the details from the host of Entity Business. Welcome back, everyone. And joining us now is NTD business host Don Ma to give us the latest updates in the financial world and business world, as always. So, Don, what's going on with the price of cocoa? Okay, so, you know, Valentine's Day tomorrow, right? So, I wanted to talk to you guys about chocolate prices. Uh, so, uh, other than that, I also have a quick update on commercial real estate and the U.S. regional banking sector. So, apparently, roughly 92% of Americans this Valentine's Day is expected to uh, share chocolate and candy. Uh, this year, according to the National Confectioners Association. But it seems like uh, not very good news for those who are actually considering this uh, for your significant other tomorrow, because the cost of the key ingredient in chocolate, which is cocoa, uh, prices is on the rise for that. Uh, so in the past year, prices more than doubled, which is significant, and prices have increased 40% since January this year and hit a record high this month, going back to the 70s. Uh, and the reason for this is a shortage of the uh, of cocoa so growers in uh, west africa who pro produce in bulk of global supply are getting extreme weather it seems like rains uh, promoted the spread of crop disease and delayed harvesting and that's been followed by a seasonal dry spell as well which could further crimp production so last year we saw for valentine's day that uh uh, candy sales exceeded $4 billion, according to the NCA. Uh, and this year, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if that number w was even higher. Wow. Yeah, like you mentioned, it destroyed three quarters of cocoa comes from the uh, West African region. And now it's hit a 47-year high just in time for Valentine's Day. Great. All right. Uh, what about, you know, traveling, though? I'm sure a lot of people are planning to go out. How does traveling look? Yeah, I'm sure... 
plenty of people are planning this, but not good news on that front either. Uh, seems like thousands of drivers for uh, ride-sharing platforms, for, for example, Uber, uh, Lyft, uh, flu delivery apps as well, DoorDash, are uh, expected to go on strike across the United States on Valentine's Day tomorrow. So uh, the drivers are accusing the platforms of taking disproportionately high amounts of commission. Uh, and in 2023, Uber drivers' monthly average gross earnings actually fell uh, 17%, so almost a fifth. Uh, so this is one of the biggest strikes I think we've seen involving thousands of uh, drivers. Um, plus, it's going to be nationwide. And the drivers are part of the Justice for App Workers Coalition. Uh, this group represents over uh, around 130,000 drivers and delivery workers. The group said that the drivers would not provide rides to and from airports between 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. in 10 U.S. cities. So that's good to keep in mind. And the coalition says that their demands include living wages, a safe working environment, and an end to unfair deactivation, quality health care benefits as well. Wow. Well, despite that, hopefully people are able to get around locally. And for people who are trying to get away, actually Port Jervis, a town just upstate from us here in their Cedar Lakes estate, made Good Housekeeping's top 10 best V-Day getaways. So okay. it's pretty cool stuff. I mean, if you're looking to have some fun. But Don, do you have anything for us concerning the real estate and regional banks? Yeah, yeah. Let me just quickly mention that investors are saying that uh, real estate pain for U.S. regional banks is piling up apparently and one said that as long as interest rates stay high it's hard for banks to actually avoid problems with commercial real estate loans uh, because according to goldman sachs research roughly 1.2 trillion dollars in commercial mortgages are set to mature this year and next year uh, so with such high interest rates we potentially might see some issues with that uh, you could have possible a uh, next wave of the crisis that began unfolding last year as we remember from silicon valley bank and if low occupancy rates for offices as well as other factors lead to a decline of 40 percent uh, in prices potentially uh, then according to fitch ratings losses in commercial real estate portfolios could result in the failure of a moderate number of predominantly smaller banks. So regional banks could be forced to sell loans at a loss, uh, but we'll have to wait and see if regulators could uh, do something about that. Right, definitely keep us up to date with that. Would you have already had some alarming trends with, for us on that end last week, but we wanna switch to tech really quick. So tell us, uh, fill us in on what's happening with Meta's Instagram. Sure, uh, so in terms of Meta's Instagram, uh, it said that Friday it's no longer proactively recommending political content from accounts that users don't already follow. So the same policy applies to threads as well, which is uh, the Twitter copycat app launched under the Instagram brand. Now, the blog said that the same controls will roll out on Facebook at a later date. And Instagram defines political content as potentially related to things like laws, elections or social topics. And Meta has already been deprioritizing political content across its social apps, including Facebook. So if Instagram blogs and accounts posts from recommendations, pro users may edit or remove recent posts to regain eligibility. Or what they can do is they may request a review if they disagree with Instagram's designation. Just a quick update there. Yeah, well, I mean, there's, you know, there's got to be a toggle that I think that's in place now for users to just switch off that political content. And, you know, it's tough stuff because you can get caught in an echo chamber on social media and only get yeah. one side of the news. Well, that's right. Um, but I guess that would be, that's their uh, attempt of 
taking another step to you know react to those allegations that the algorithms are amplifying disinformation and stuff like that but yeah thank you so much don ma for keeping us up to date thank you and we're heading to a quick break but we'll be right back after one minute so stay tuned there are real consequences to controlled media And NTD's founders know them firsthand. Our freedom of thought is the price. This is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. Yeah, so there's the tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. And we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD. Good morning, welcome to NTD. Good morning, here are our top stories. A judge says District Attorney Fannie Willis could be disqualified from Georgia's election case and may be asked to testify over accusations of misconduct this week. And former President Trump asks the Supreme Court to step in on the matter of presidential immunity. Trump endorses Michael Watley to replace Ronna McDaniel as RNC chair, the latest in the former president's plans to shake up the committee. President Biden meets with the King of Jordan about the future of the war in Gaza, what each say their priorities are and the status of a potential hostage deal. Public schools in New York are closed today as a fast-moving nor'easter is forecast to dump up to eight inches of snow in the city and surrounding suburbs. How officials are preparing. The Senate passes the Ukraine-Israel aid package, setting up a showdown with the House. Speaker Johnson's latest criticisms of the bill and why Senator J.D. Vance is sounding the alarm on a possible hidden time bomb. Colombia is a major supplier of cut flowers to the U.S. With Valentine's Day around the corner, how one floral company there is preparing for the holiday rush. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome everyone. Today is Tuesday, February 13th. Today's top news, former President Trump asked the Supreme Court yesterday to pause a lower court's ruling, rejecting his bid for presidential immunity. Trump also wants a full bench of judges to reconsider the D.C. appeals court decision instead of the three-judge panel that made the ruling. Meanwhile, the district attorney in Georgia's election case could be facing disqualification. A judge said yesterday the DA might have to testify Thursday over allegations of misconduct. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on Trump's legal battles. Former President Trump asked the Supreme Court Monday to temporarily block a unanimous decision from the D.C. Circuit denying his claims to presidential immunity in his federal January 6th case. The case would be sent back to trial court to proceed if Trump's request is rejected. If granted, the case would be further delayed. It generally takes the votes of five justices to grant a stay. Prosecutors have argued Trump was acting as a candidate, not a president, for his alleged role on January 6th. 
Trump wants the case dismissed based on presidential immunity. In Georgia, the judge and district attorney Fonnie Willis's election case against Trump said she could be disqualified. I think it's clear that disqualification can occur if evidence is produced demonstrating an actual conflict or the appearance of one. Willis and special counsel Nathan Wade tried to have their subpoenas quashed and the hearing canceled. The judge rejected their arguments. He says Thursday's hearing will focus on if a relationship existed, if it was romantic in nature, when it formed, and whether it continues. The judge says it remains to be proven that Willis financially benefited from the case, but that Thursday's hearing must occur to establish the record on allegations of misconduct, and that Willis may be required to testify due to a good faith basis for relevance from the defense. The relevant information that Mr. Bradley has to this inquiry is that this relationship started prior to Mr. Wade being appointed as a special prosecutor in this case. Trump and his co-defendants are also seeking to get the entire case dismissed. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And for insight into Trump's appeal to the Supreme Court for immunity in his January 6th case, we bring in Paul Kaminar, the lead counsel at the National Legal and Policy Center. Paul, great to have you here. How much of a delay Thank could you. this lead to? Oh, it can lead to quite a delay. I mean, first of all, if the court grants the stay, that does take five votes, uh, then they'll have to set a uh, schedule for the actual petition for certiorari. So if they deny the stay, uh, then that'll probably take just a week or two just to uh, decide that, then it goes back. So it could go up to uh, a, several months because they could, number one, grant the stay, and then two, have them file the petition for cert. Jack Smith files an opposition. They file a reply to Trump's attorney, and then there's an oral argument, and then they have to decide it. So this could take uh, uh, several months uh, to, to adjudicate. So it's, we'll see how it turns out. Yeah, and just very briefly, Paul, would that cause, with all the other moving parts of this case, the actual case to be delayed after the election? Yeah, it's a very good chance it'll be delayed after the election. And in fact, the Justice Department has a policy not to prosecute uh, uh, cases that will interfere with the election. So the closer that they get to the election day, the more the Justice Department has to say, hey, look, we've got to put a hold on this case because it violates their own internal policy about not interfering with uh, upcoming elections. Okay, so Paul, the Supreme Court has been receptive to Trump's arguments, at least in part, when it was siding with Trump, or apparently doing so, on that uh, reje rejection for the uh, ballot, his, his appearance on the ballot. So do you expect that to happen here in this immunity appeal as well? Well, yeah, good point. Yeah, I was in the uh, court to hear that case uh, on the ballot case, so the judges were favorably disposed to Trump's argument. Uh, in this case, it's hard to, uh, discern the tea leaves here, uh, but the, he has very good arguments that at a minimum, the court should take the case because it's a terribly important case uh, in terms of presidential immunity and could have wide ranging ramifications. So if they don't grant the stay, they may say, okay, look, let's just have hear the case right now, uh, which basically includes a stay with it. So uh, I think they're uh, going to probably grant it. They need only four votes to hear the case but five votes to grant the stay. Very interesting, Paul. And, you know, lower court obviously rejected the immunity claim, whereas Trump's team actually was arguing that if Trump was able to face a criminal trial over this, it would hamstring future presidents from taking bold actions to serve the public interest. But I want to switch gears here and talk about the high-stakes closed-door hearing on the classified documents case. Can you give us a comparison of President Trump's case to President Biden's in terms of these classified documents? 
Yeah, sure. Well, you know, uh, in Biden's case, uh, they did find classified documents of the highest order, the uh, uh, specialized compartmental uh, SCI SCIF uh, documents in his garage. So in that regard, uh, they're, they're basically the same there. The difference they're saying in the Trump case is that he obstructed the investigation of that, and therefore that's different from uh, by, by the Biden case. But, you know, in, in all fairness, there is an unequal system of justice going on, and, and I would expect uh, uh, the Trump attorneys to file a motion uh, on selective prosecution just on that alone. Uh, but in both cases, they're talking about classified documents that were kept by, by the president. And the vice president was not, you know, uh, Biden was not president at the time and could not declassify those documents anyway, whereas Trump could do that. So there, there's a lot of difference there, and, and we'll see how that plays out. Yeah, it's very important to pry into all this. And according to the New York Times, in order to show that a crime was committed, the prosecution has to demonstrate that the retention of classified documents was willful. And President Trump pointed to Robert Hur's finding that it was willful and said that, hey, if Biden's not going to be prosecuted, neither should I. Right, exactly. They did find he, uh, Biden had a willful retention and disclosure uh, of the documents. And so there is a, a comparison there and does show an equal system of justice. Yes. Well, Paul Cameron, and, and our the lead Biden counsel, case was saying that he was his memory was bad and they can't go after him, which is I've never heard of that. And in, in a prosecution decision Gonna have to keep a close eye on this. Paul Cameron, our lead counsel at the National Legal and Policy Center. Thank you. Thank you. Former President Trump looking to shake up the Republican National Committee. He's backing North Carolina Republican Party Chairman Michael Watley to succeed Ronna McDaniel as RNC chair. He also endorsed his daughter-in-law, Laura Trump, as co-chair. McDaniel had offered to step down after the South Carolina primary after she met with Trump at his Mar-a-Lago residence earlier in the month. Trump is also tapping his senior presidential campaign advisor to manage the RNC's day-to-day -day operations. Republican presidential contender Nikki Haley criticized Trump's endorsements, saying that he's rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. She says under Trump and the current RNC leadership, Republicans lost elections in 2018, 2020, and 2022. The first, President Biden met with the King of Jordan at the White House yesterday. The two heads of state discussed a hostage deal between Israel and Hamas that would pause fighting, bring humanitarian aid to civilians, and solutions for peace in the region. President Biden met with longtime U.S. ally Jordan's King Abdullah II on Monday for talks on the Israel-Hamas war. The United States is working on a hostage deal between Israel and Hamas, which would bring an immediate and sustained period of calm to Gaza for at least six weeks. The pause in fighting would allow humanitarian aid and supplies to flow into the Strip. Biden said the U.S. would do everything possible to make an agreement happen, adding that key elements of the deal are on the table, but there are gaps that remain. This comes after Israeli airstrikes on the city of Rafah in southern Gaza. Israel rescued two hostages during the operation. Rafa currently holds close to one and a half million Palestinians. Biden stressed a major military operation should not proceed without a credible plan to ensure the safety of the people sheltering there. And now they're packed into Rafa, exposed and vulnerable. They need to be protected. Abdullah, the first Arab leader to visit the White House since Hamas's October 7th terrorist attack on Israel, called for a complete ceasefire. We must together, along with Arab partners and the international community step up efforts to reach a ceasefire in Gaza and immediately start working to create a political horizon that leads to a just and comprehensive peace. 
Senior officials from the U.S., Egypt, Israel, and Qatar will reportedly resume negotiations Tuesday in Cairo on a hostage deal and humanitarian pause, anonymous sources told Reuters. State Department spokesman Matthew Miller didn't confirm talks would take place, but said Israel's military action in Rafah should in no way impact the negotiations. Coming up, the Senate passes the Ukraine-Israel aid package, setting up a showdown with the House. Speaker Johnson's latest criticism of the bill and why Senator J.D. Vance is sounding the alarm on a possible hidden time bomb. And does the government owe you a place to sleep? A Supreme Court case on the homelessness crisis. The outcome will affect cities faced with difficult decisions on how to respond. Flowers are the quintessential Valentine's Day gift. We take you behind the scenes to a Colombian flower company producing blooms for the app American Market. Good morning again and good to have you back. Breaking news this morning, the Senate has passed the $95 billion aid package for Ukraine and Israel, setting up a showdown with the House. Speaker Mike Johnson has criticized the bill and is threatening to ignore it. NTD's Daniel Monahan has the details. Johnson wrote Monday that the legislation fails to meet the mandate of securing America's borders. The impasse represents a fundamental disagreement between Republicans and Democrats. Republicans want stronger measures at the southern border before agreeing to more foreign aid. Democrats are prioritizing the aid for Ukraine and Israel. The Senate package cleared a test vote Monday evening. That puts the measure on a path toward final passage, perhaps by the end of the week. The bill includes over $60 billion in additional aid to Ukraine, $14 billion to Israel, nearly $2.5 billion for Red Sea operations, Nearly $5 billion to support partners in the Indo-Pacific, including Taiwan, and deter aggression by China, and around $9 billion in humanitarian assistance to civilians in Gaza, the West Bank, Ukraine, and other populations in conflict zones. Senator J.D. Vance sounded the alarm on what he called an impeachment time bomb for a potential Donald Trump presidency buried in the bill's text. Vance says that time bomb could be set off if Trump tries to stop funding the war in Ukraine. The Ohio senator says he sent a memo to all GOP colleagues, pointing out the Ukraine funding in the bill continues until September 30, 2025. The memo brings up the former president's 2019 impeachment and connects that with his freezing of funds to Ukraine. The impeachment report criticizes Trump for freezing military assistance to Ukraine against national security interests and says he did so despite long-standing bipartisan support of Congress and uniform support across federal departments and agencies. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. A fast-moving winter storm expected to hit the Northeast this morning. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the weather system that could dump as much as 8 inches of snow in New York City before moving north later today. The Metropolitan Transportation Authority in New York was busy getting its bus fleet ready with snow chains for the storm. Some of the highest snowfall totals were forecast for the northern suburbs of New York City. 
Mayor Eric Adams says public schools will be closed on Tuesday with classes being held remotely. Yo, that's one of the things that came out of COVID-19. We could continue the educational process of our children, so they will be learning remotely. The Department of Sanitation says it began putting salt on roadways on Monday night. And we will be prepared to plow every street, every highway, and every bike lane as soon as accumulations hit two inches or more. Temperatures were not expected to dip much below freezing in New York, raising the prospect of heavy and wet snow that's difficult to shovel off sidewalks. The storm is expected to bring low visibility, high wind gusts, slick roads, and up to two feet of coastal flooding. Southern New England is also forecast to be hit. Cities including Boston and Hartford, Connecticut could see up to a foot of snow. Wind gusts could hit 60 miles per hour off the Massachusetts coast and 40 miles per hour in interior parts of Southern New England. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. From daunting weather to the homelessness crisis, towns and cities across the U.S., particularly out west, are caught in a trap. Do they stretch their budgets to provide housing to people on the streets or leave encampments alone? A case involving this is set to go before the Supreme Court. We hear more about this from Mark Miller, a senior attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation. Sure. Thank you for having me on, Kevin. Uh, the Supreme Court will be hearing later this spring in uh, April a case called Martin versus City of Grants Pass, and it has to do with whether it's cruel or unusual punishment for a city government to try and address the homeless crisis by fining or moving homeless people along. The idea is uh, we've seen exploding uh, homeless population on the West Coast, and how are cities supposed to deal with it? The lower appeals court, the decision that's on appeal, said that the government cannot arrest them because they're involuntarily homeless. That is, they have no choice but to be sleeping on public property. Right. So in, in an ideal sense, the homeless people are back on their feet. They get a job. They can sustain themselves. But if they can't and there's no shelter in place, how would taking away their sleeping bags bring any solution to this? Well, what the governments are saying is that we, the local governments and even the state government, Gavin Newsom here, has weighed in uh, because California, of course, is dealing with this problem uh, very much, as we all know. And what they're saying is we should be able to uh, address this public po policy problem without the courts interfering. This isn't about constitutional rights. This is more about order. And what's interesting about that is, as I said, Governor Newsom is on one side. In fact, you have an interesting combination. Uh, 24 friend of the court briefs filed. It's not really a left-right issue. It's more a question of how do we best solve what is a public policy problem? Do we get the courts involved? Or do we let the local government and state government address that public policy problem? I see. So, Mark, right now there are about 600,000 homeless people in America. And the Epic Times put out an article alleging that there will be this San Francisco-style homelessness problem in all cities across the United States. Do you agree with this? Well, I think that's what the Supreme Court is going to have to, to wrestle with, Kevin. The, the point of this case, the, the homeless advocates would say that you have a right to a public place to sleep. That's ultimately what it comes down to. Traditionally, our Constitution has been seen as not giving you something, but rather protecting your rights. So I have, I have a right to life, a right to liberty, and a right to property that the government can't interfere with. It doesn't have to provide me something. But this case, you, you have the Ninth Circuit saying that the, the government should be providing you a place to sleep. And if it doesn't, then it can't move you along. It can't tell you to get off public property. Ultimately, 
I would be surprised if the Supreme Court were to use this case as the first time where it will say that, in fact, the government owes you a place to sleep. So based on the law, what rights do homeless people have? Well, I think that you certainly have the right to be treated equally. Everyone should be treated with equal protection of the law, and you have a right to fair process, what we call due process. But the idea that it's punishment for the government to try and move you along, uh, what you might you know, traditionally call vagrancy laws, the idea that vagrancy laws that have been the law in the country for basically time immemorial are somehow now unconstitutional would be surprising. Everyone should be treated fair. Everyone should be given an opportunity to succeed. The local government should certainly do everything it can do within you know, you know, what the, the people want it to do to help the homeless. But again, we're not talking about whether we should help them. We're talking about what they have a right to. And that's a very different question. I see. Well, Mark Miller, senior attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation, thank you so much for unpacking this. Thank you, Kevin. Always a pleasure to join you. Quick switch of topics, tomorrow is Valentine's Day and it may not be a busy time for air travel, but it's a busy time at Miami International Airport. Many of the nation's fresh cut flowers arrive there from South America. U.S. Customs and Border Patrol says around 90% of the roses and fresh cut flowers being sold in the U.S. for Valentine's Day come through Miami. The cargo spokesman says it's one of the most demanding times of the year for staff. This season, we transfer around 460 million flowers from Ecuador and Colombia. Most of them are hot roses, so 300 million roses from those countries to Valentine's. So it's, those are huge numbers. Almost one flower per each American living here. The season actually starts mid-January and ends tomorrow. During that period, flowers arrive in Miami on some 300 flights then head on their way to florists and supermarkets across the U.S. and Canada. That's where U.S. Customs Agriculture Specialists get to work. They check flower bundles to stop harmful plant, pests and foreign animal diseases from entering the country. Specialists processed over 860 million stems of flowers during the same period last year. They intercepted over 900 plant pest cases. Once the Valentine's rush is over, planning begins for the next big U.S. Flower Day, Mother's Day, in May. And a bouquet of flowers is always a popular gift on Valentine's Day. For flower farmers, it's one of the busiest and most important days of the year. Let's take a look at how one company in Colombia prepares for the holiday. Valentine's Day is almost here. Plaza Leda Flowers, a floriculture company near Bogota, Colombia, is gearing up to meet the rush. Employees are hard at work picking and packing lilies, carnations, and hydrangeas ahead of this week's holiday. Why are flowers such a popular gift to celebrate love? Through the different shapes, colors, aromas, we can express a diversity of emotions and strong feelings, such as reconciliation, love, forgiveness, a lot of emotions. The floral industry doesn't just bring joy to customers, it also provides jobs or other benefits to hundreds of thousands of workers. In addition to the magic that a flower can express on its own, we also have to think about everything behind the flowers. When we buy and give a flower as a gift, we are contributing to more than 600,000 people who benefit directly and indirectly from this industry. A lot of care goes into growing the perfect bloom. I started treating the flowers with love. I talk to them, I play music for them, and they respond to me in the same way. That is, they themselves become beautiful. To prepare for Valentine's Day, companies start flower production six months ahead of time. 
According to the Colombian Association of Flower Exporters, the country exported 52,000 tons of cut flowers for the holiday between January and February last year. Good to know about what work <clears throat> goes into the flowers that we get sometimes, but we'll leave it here. We'll keep you updated, of course, with the latest information. But thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.